Hello and welcome to the first episode in the Creating Customer Success podcast series. My name is Dan and I'm your host. And my name is Alex and I'm your co-host. In this series, we are interviewing customer success leaders to learn how to build and run the best CS teams. On today's episode, we're joined by Rav, who has previously worked as a CS leader at Zendesk, Yammer, and more recently Slack. Just as a quick heads up, the audio quality does improve after the first few minutes, so we hope you all enjoy listening. I guess to kick off, what we would love to just hear a little bit more about is your background in general and how you got started in CS. Uh, Well, firstly, um, Alex, Dan, thank you for uh, inviting me along to come and speak today. Uh, So yeah, my career has been broadly in software, enterprise software, for about the last 20 plus years, Um, kind of in three main areas. One could argue that it's all been customer success, really, but it's just had different names (laughs) over the years. Uh, So I started my my career in, uh, in tech support, um, this is back pretty much in the client server on premises type of world. Um, kind of eventually moving towards more premium support and actually running premium support businesses. So these are where people pay for an enhanced level of support and you know managing and running those teams. Um, and then sort of transitioned into consulting professional services. Uh, and that was very much heavily focused on deploying technology. Uh, and then over sort of the last 10 years, it's been very much focused around customer success, which is, you know, really a byword for adoption and value. So you could argue that all three of those were really focused on uh, similar things. And it's kind of almost an evolution in how we think about customers and, and software. And so, so I imagine you've probably seen a lot of changes, especially, as you mentioned, even in terms of the names kind of changing over time. What are your overall views on what customer success is now? A brilliant and- question. Yeah. So if you look at a little bit of the history of CS, originally when sort of cloud products first uh, turned up, they weren't very good. The quality wasn't very good. So really the early incarnation of CS was really much like an enhanced support. It was just kind of like, because you know these products are still new and they're not, not so great. Over time, the product quality increased and stability increased and things like that. So the, the, the reactive support nature dropped off a little bit. And it became much more about relationship. How do I build relationship with the customer? Uh, and I mean, that's still obviously very important. But what you've found now with the increasing sophistication of cloud products and, and cloud solutions in particular, and software in general, uh, you've got the stability, you know, you're, you're getting good at the relationships. It's really then become about usage and making sure the customer is seeing value. And I think that's the key thing when you want to define customer success is, the mission of success is to make sure that you know you're ex- you're accelerating the speed at which your customer gets value from your product or service and you're also adding value to your own company and i think that's really important to remember um y- you know you you want to think commercially but not act commercially because what you want to do is make sure that the customer is achieving the goals they set out to achieve with your product or service. So it's very much focused around value. So it's, it's almost born out of that need for repeat subscription, isn't it really, in terms of the only way that you will get someone to repeat exactly what they've had before mm. and more is to make sure that they are happily engaged and, and getting the most out of it yeah, over the length of that period. Absolutely correct, yeah. yeah. So <clears throat> one thing that doesn't often get focused on is the cost of acquiring the customer in the first place. Yeah. You know, it's a quite expensive business. You know, you've got sales, marketing, solutions engineering. Like, you know, you have a lot of, a lot of dollars ago behind acquiring the customer. So if you lose a customer, mm-hmm. you haven't just lost the revenue they were giving you, you've lost the cost in actually acquiring them in the first place, which means for every dollar you lose, you, you know, you may have to find a dollar fifty 
you know, to win, to just to make up for the loss, not even before winning any new business. So, uh, to your point, Alex, yeah, it's increasingly important to make sure that the customer is ultimately uh, very positively predisposed to your solution and your company, but ultimately your solution is adding the value they were looking for. Mm. Uh, and I think where um, CS really comes in is they can ex help accelerate that process. So customer may have deployed this on their own, it might have taken them six months, but if you bring some CS expertise, it may take them two months, you know, and that's a, that's a big win. It's interesting, especially about the value that you mentioned there in terms of perhaps maybe for every customer that you lose. How do you go about building that culture of customer success internally and helping um, C-suite see the, the value of that, especially in the, perhaps maybe an early stage yeah, startup? Yeah, that's a terrific question. So, <clears throat> and I, I know you're, you guys are speaking with my good friend Dan next week, so I'll probably steal one of, one of Dan's <laughs> quotes where, you know, if CS is just a department, it will fail. I mean, that, and I think that, that that encapsulates the thinking behind it really well. Um, it has to be a really top-down driven mission. It has to be something that really comes from the leaders and founders of the company to say, like, we want to orient everything we do, how we engage, how we sell, how we build a product towards uh, long-term customer value. And if that isn't um, quite necessarily embedded yet in the culture, then it's very much an education and an internal change management effort to explain and educate and drive awareness of what the team is doing and why it's doing it. So in, in precisely that point, being able to show that actually customers we engage with are that much more happier from their NPS scores or they are expanding at a much faster rate than customers that we don't engage with or this is the amount of revenue we have prevented from churning by doing these things. So I think actually, you know, education awareness and then painting a picture of the material benefit that you are adding to the business and customers is, is a is a good way to start the other thing can also be to bring in practitioners from outside your peers of your executives who are bought into this and have them explain to them why they do certain things and why they're important because it's all very, it's all very well hearing from your own team but if you hear it from a peer of yours outside it's a, it will definitely reinforce the uh, the message yeah, definitely. I think um, it'd be interesting to, to hear your opinion on as well on, we're going to have a section on building and implementing teams as well, but I'm just keen to hear about how you think customer success works along other functions that have existed for a long time, mm -hmm. as like account management, for example. How, yeah. how do they best work hand in hand? Yeah, so the um, interesting thing um, that I've found just by talking to lots of different companies and being in lots of different companies is one of the things that people often do is they either think about customer success in response to the fact that after the sale, they realize stuff was still happening and no one owned it, right? And so they sort of start to scrabble around, especially this often happens when you start landing really big clients. Uh, and you go, oh, wow, actually, they've got needs that we haven't thought about meeting. And so you sort of scrabble around. And in that, in, in that scenario, the CS team will often become the everything department. Like if it doesn't fit somewhere, we'll give, we'll give it to them. Um, the uh, other way where, uh, and this typically comes from uh, people having brought other experiences to the company, is where they actually realize that we should make CS part of how we go to market. Yeah. So part of our sales motion, mm -hmm. how we talk to customers, how we sell to them, the notion of CS is embedded in, that, in those discussions. So 
it could be as simple as hey, when we have a kickoff, a sales kickoff with a customer and we're pitching our product, mm. there's a couple of slides in that pitch saying, oh, and by the way, we've got this really smart bunch of experts who are going to work with you to make you successful. Here's the value that they add. Here's their credentials. Because that makes the buying decision for the customer a little less risky because they kind of know that, all right, you're going to put some effort in to help me. Uh, and then actually towards the end of the sale, where you know it's going to happen, you're just waiting for you know the signatures, is to even introduce the team, reintroduce the team there to actually get started, yep. right? Uh, and so that, that sort of alignment between account management and sales um, and having it integrated as part of the go-to-market definitely is very advantageous both from a, your own company and from your customer because handovers, frankly, are, are just a painful experience for everybody. Um, more specifically in the area of account management, and by that, Alex, I take that to mean post-sales people who have a, a responsibility for growing a yeah. book of business. Yeah. Um, it's important then to, to work out what... Uh, you, I'm a very big believer in putting people into pods, so aligning CS people with uh, uh, account managers, whether it's by territory, by language, oh. by vertical, however you've organised, and then having essentially a shared book of business. So... You know, the CS person understands, okay, well, this is Alex's priority expansions he's working on, right? You know, what do I need to do with these customers? This customer's in a bad state. We need to get them on a good footing. This customer is happy. We need to uncover the ROI and the value prop there, you know, and so on and so forth. So they're working in tandem and they're prioritizing um, where they're going to spend their effort because obviously you can't put high effort into all customers. Uh, now, there will be differences. You know, the CS will have maybe some accounts are our priority for them, but not necessarily for accounts. And that's fine if you establish uh, a good working rhythm and a good alignment, that shouldn't shouldn't be too much of, a, uh, of an issue. Does that, does that answer the, the question? Yeah, definitely. I think um, that there's potentially an element of, and I've, I've heard people sort of explain it in this way before, but almost like a good guy and a bad guy relationship with the client (laughs) in a way. So almost like you're being the best friend of the client from a customer success perspective. Yeah. I mean, one would hope, and going back to your earlier questions, Anne, about, you know, how do you permeate this into the culture? One would hope that that doesn't just apply to CS. It would apply to everybody, um, whether it's support or engineering or or, or sales. Um, But I think it's, I think it's fine. Customers know they're not dumb. They know that everyone they talk to is from a vendor and the vendor has a commercial goal. Um, and they'll know that their account manager uh, is tasked with increasing revenue. The really good account managers are the ones that actually act more like a consultative CS type person where they are doing good discovery and they're generally asking customers questions and trying to suggest ways that the tool or solution can help solve those problems. Um, so I don't know if they think it's an either or, but all I would say is it's really important, I think, for good CS people do think commercially, but they just don't act it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and I think that's the that's the tough conundrum. But I think that is really ultimately how you build that trust, because uh, a customer is probably going to be more inclined to talk to you because they know that you may not necessarily at a micro level be targeted with numbers this quarter, mm. but at a macro level you're really targeted with numbers at a on a longer term basis. Yeah. They may be more inclined to talk to you about that. But uh, I don't necessarily think it's a, it, it, it can be perceived maybe as a good cop, bad cop yeah. thing. But um, if you're both doing your job right, then it's very much focused around value. Uh, the, you know, and I, I'm actually a very big believer in 
see us having revenue targets as well, okay. maybe different ones or longer term ones. Um, but yeah, it doesn't always have to be a, a, a good cop, bad cop. Because I was going to ask on that as well with like the sort of relationship between a customer success manager and perhaps maybe an account manager where that is a structure. Mm-hmm. Do you find that there are optimal setups depending on the stage of where the company is at? So mm-hmm. I know for some companies, the customer success manager is almost like the account manager. They'll yeah, have yeah, for sure, yeah. uh, a sort of target yeah, and, and, and it'd be interesting to see other people's perspective when you talk to them as part of this podcast yeah. series. But if you drew a Venn diagram, uh, and I can send it to you because I actually have drawn a Venn diagram of this. If you look at what an, an account manager, let's say the account manager is responsible for the commercial health of the, comp- of the customer. And so they are typically doing negotiation, pricing, uh, uh, contractual stuff, uh, prospecting. Then you look at the customer success circle and that is i'm responsible for their product health adoption engagement fully utilization of the product use cases the venn diagram of people who can do both the overlaps are really small (laughs) like it's really small so i don't know if there is an optimal setting but there is kind of one scenario where you know a sale gets made it gets transitioned to an account manager that person owns the account owns the relationship owns the strategy and then they draw on their aligned cs people to help uh deliver that strategy okay customer is really struggling with analytics right can i bring in one of the cs team and actually do a workshop on analytics and get them seeing value from it there is the uh, other alternative where you sell and the seller stays with the customer and they, they, they are the new seller and the account manager. And again, they draw on an aligned uh, set of, uh, they draw on, on an aligned uh, CS team. That model works really well when your expansion model is a land and expand. Mm-hmm. So if your sales motion is we sell them a product and then really our goal, you know, maybe the product's got virality built into it, maybe that it's easy for them to add more people and you true up every quarter then it makes that's a model that makes a lot of sense if the um goal is well stickiness so actually once we sold to the customer they're replacing some other solution or system so everybody that's going to be using it has to use it um and so actually selling more seats isn't really an option it's actually selling more capability more feature then that may really well lend itself to having an account manager and an aligned cs person um in my experience, uh, selling and then giving to a CS person only really works if the product's extraordinarily simple uh, and really your major focus is on just commercially selling more license because then you would hire people with a much more commercial bent. And I wouldn't necessarily even think of that as a CS team. I think of that as an account management team. Yeah. Does, it, does, that, does that answer the question? Yeah. So there's no right or wrong model. I think it's much more to do with you know, what is the expansion play for your product or service? Is it selling them, you know, more of the same service? Is it selling them more capability of that service? Is it selling them other products? And I think that would kind of be a place to start when thinking about alignment. So when we talk about um, a place to start, and obviously we we sort of mentioned then in terms of based on the maturity model, where the the company may be, um, based on your experience in the past, where where do you think is the best place to start if if you've been brought in and the leadership team has said to you we want to introduce customer success as mm-hmm. a function what are the typical starting points well first thing i'd ask is why 
Sure. <laughs> so is this in response to stuff not working or, you know, customer complaints or attrition or et cetera? Because once you understand the why, then you can really start to dig into and work your way backwards as to why certain stuff is happening. Uh, let's just say that isn't the reason it's not in reaction to a problem. It is actually, well, I want to think about keeping these customers for the long term, et cetera. Then what I would do is actually to set about trying to engage all of the customers that have been hugely successful and find out what are the common traits they all have uh, to, to being successful. You know, is it they had really strong project management on their side or they have uh, very strong technical skills or um you know whatever it is you know what are the four or five things that all your really successful customers have in common and then start to build a team that will amplify that so you know like if you know for example having really really tight projects uh, tightly con- you know tightly defined project management plan is a success to getting them onboarded well build a generic one and then work through it with each of your customers uh, if you realize that actually to be all other really successful customers have incredibly strong executive sponsorship is then make sure as part of the handover that those relationships carry forward uh, you know into the into the CSO perfect yeah and i was going to say as well so obviously in that example there we were saying that it's relatively proactive they want to um, plan for the future so what are the what are the key things that you would look for in terms of ensuring that future from a um from your cs perspective when speaking with a client what are i guess the key questions that you would want to know from the client um in terms of like assessing whether or not they're going to be successful yeah exactly. yeah okay so I, I think this broadly applies to, to to almost anything which is one the point i made before is like is there strong business and executive sponsorship you know is someone of sufficient importance in the business is this important to them yeah well, that's one thing uh, and that can be challenging if you have a, a free sign-up product because it will often start with a group of people who want to use a product and then you come to convert that and you realize you don't have any exact sponsorship and that can yeah. be very difficult. The other thing is, do you know? will they bring the necessary skills and resources to either get it deployed or get it configured or to uh, communicate its availability, et cetera? So will they put some resource in? Yeah. The level of resource they put in will depend on, obviously whether you're installing some incredibly complex uh, middleware system or whether it's a client server application or whatever. So so executive sponsorship resource, do they have a plan? Like, do they have, you know, milestones and a definite end date that they're working towards? Because one thing you've got to remember as CS professionals, you get paid to do your product. They do not. They get paid to be a bank or insurance company or a, a research organization. So they're doing this on top of their daily work. So, you know, do they have a plan? Um, do they have uh, metrics that they are, or, or some form of KPI that they are working towards? You know, are they trying to do something quicker, faster, cheaper? It could even be sentiment. You know, are they saying, well, we're employing this, we're deploying this employee engagement solution because we want our internal NPS scores to rise? You know, if there's some sort of metric that you can use to, uh, uh, to, to measure success. And, uh, and also, depending again on what the product service is, you know, do they have the technical? resources it's it's all very well them being heavily sponsored and uh, and having a plan and having the resource and like well you know all our it's outsourced so it's going to take us three months to get approval to do the single sign-on or something right so, so those are kind of a couple of the questions i would ask i would also 
try to actually determine how well they have done with introducing new things in the past. In other words, what's their success rate with introducing change into the organisation? Yeah, because I think that's one of the uh, the things that sometimes gets brought up in the conversation as well in, in terms of that change management. So yeah. um, I, I was going to say as well what I guess that's part of the next question I was going to ask. But so you're at the stage where you've um, you've been brought on. You're going to implement the the team. You've done your research and you know what you're looking for in terms of mm-hmm. to make your clients successful. Um, is there a checklist that you look for when you start to build and, and hire people as part of the team? Well, that's a good, great question. So I think it's it, it sounds very discreet the way you've described it, but often you don't have the luxury of saying, "Well, I'm going to take a month or two to research, <laughs> sure. and then I'm going to." You, know, you have to just keep going, right? So. Um, I think broadly, um, from a, just a skills, experience, competency point of view, I think you want people that have got a pretty good track record of doing customer-facing work. So they don't necessarily have to always be a CS person, but it, someone who's just, you know, they're working with customers is is not new to them. So I think uh, that's really important. I think people who have, con, you know, are consultative, yeah. uh, they may not necessarily have a consulting background, but people who are like really, really good at, First of all, listening and actively listening, empathizing, and then being able to distill what they're hearing into either solutions or use cases for your product. Uh, people who have just got a good, you know, some grounding in basic project management or just doing things in an analytical way because you're going to give them probably quite a few customers. So they just have to be like on top of and being quite organized, I guess. And, uh, 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 and related to that is um, people who are very good at influencing others where they don't have any authority and that's one of the biggest conundrums you you know a success professionals is all you have is influence you don't have the authority to make your customer do anything (laughs) right so so that is wrapped up into you know things like integrity trustworthiness Uh, i always think really good communication skills not necessarily just being able to get up and present but just writing skills like yep. being able to express yourself impactfully but briefly um one of the biggest bits of feedback i mean uh, you know to all the people i've managed over the years is that, that's great can you make it shorter yeah. and they're like yeah. well why because the person you're sending this to is really busy and they're probably going to be on a phone and if they have to scroll they're not going to read it yeah. you know so just that you know ability to communicate i think you you also want people who are um good networkers because i think to get a lot done you have to you can't just do it all on your own you know internally you have to again be influential and bring people in and say well, i need someone from product to get on this call with a customer or i need to escalate this to, to support and that kind of thing uh, and i think finally you, you again depending on uh, what it is your product or services you want people who have got good sort of technical and commercial acumen so you don't have to be a technical genius but it's useful to at least have a baseline level of tech experience so you at least understand the question. So at least you understand that, oh, I need to go and find someone who knows about X. Because um, you need to have credibility in front of the customer. So it's fine to say, look, you know, look, I'm not a, uh, uh, I'm not a uh, web server expert, but I understand broadly what you're saying. I can ask you a few questions. I might even be able to point you at some of our documentation, but ultimately I can go and find the right person um there's some cs people who work for me who aren't technical but they go and read the api documents and suddenly become experts at api i don't think anyone's necessarily expecting that but uh, again the more tech savvy and then around the, the business acumen piece again that goes back to what i said before which is about 
being able to think commercially but not necessarily act or behave mm -hmm. commercially. Customers are really savvy. They get sold to all the time yeah. by hundreds of people every day. So they're very, whether they know it or not, they're very highly attuned to being sold to. So um, you you want people who are have all those traits but will still be able to keep in mind that actually we can add a ton of value to the customer here and commercially that's really good for us. So there is a win-win. Yeah. I guess how would you uncover those types of skills in somebody perhaps maybe interviewing yeah. for, for a role with <laughs> well, you? That's a brilliant which question. Which is yeah, yeah. obviously difficult to do. But. Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's something I'm actually working on right now. I guess the way to summarise it is that the best predictor of future behaviour is past and present behaviour. So really what you want to try and do, I think assessing competency uh, is is generally what a lot of people focus on, right? Okay, so you've got four years doing this. Tell me about that. How did you do X, et cetera? And that is important. You want to do that. But you also, because so much of the role is that kind of, you know, integrity, trust, acumen stuff, stuff that's all behavioral. And that is actually the biggest predictor of how successful is going to be. You can teach people most things, technical things. You can teach them project management, et cetera. Um, and so I think it's really important to make sure that your interview process um, has a, a really strong behavioral component to it as well as a competency. Um, I'm a really big fan of distilling every role, whether it's sales, success, whatever, down to a scorecard. And the scorecard is not just a checklist, it underpins every stage of the, uh, of the recruitment process and the interview process. And it's distilling the role down into, this is the mission of the role. This is how we're going to measure this role. These are the competencies that we are looking for. These are the behaviors. So we want people who have high integrity, that have grit, that are uh, you know, collaborative, you know, all those other things. And then you can actually build a bank of questions you know, to, 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 to go through that process. Um, the conundrum with hiring is the balance between hiring well and hiring fast. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you will often be under a lot of pressure to hire well. I would say every hiring mistake I've ever made has been because I have succumbed to the hiring fast mm -hmm. rather than the hiring well. Um, and you should really err on taking your time because, frankly, the cost of mishiring is enormous, not just in terms of the monetary cost, but the impact of the business, team morale, all sorts of other, just the, just the what I call the management debt yeah. of mishiring is enormous, especially if you're a growing business. So it really pays to have a, a focus on competency and behavior to build, a, you know, like a baseline scorecard for each role, and then actually set up um, a, sort of an interview schedule where you get as many eyes and, and ears on a on a person as possible. And then you get gut checks. So I'm really a big fan of when you do a deep dive, uh, have two managers in the room, right? You're leading the interview, but one is there observing and taking notes. Um, because you need... Uh, and then don't confer, yeah. right? Submit your feedback separately and then have a have a wash up with recruitment and go, okay, well, we have a huge divergence between Dan and Alex here, right? And then and really get into it. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess it's really about, as I say, distilling what the, the role is and what the behavioral and attributes you're looking for, as well as the competencies. And then, you know, not rushing. 
I like that idea. And I think even that's something that can probably be rolled out company-wide, mm. not just within the customer success Correct, team, yeah. but to make sure that everyone has the same values as the company. Yeah. Um, and in terms of their interactions yeah, with the customer. Absolutely. Like I say, you can, you can teach... You know, unless you have a product or service that requires really specific either technical or domain expertise, like it's legal software, so you have to come from a legal background um, because you're, you know, it's compliance or whatever. Um, unless it's in that area, you can teach people most things. You know, like you say, you can send them on a change management course, you can send them on a product deep dive, depending on how complex the product is. What you can't teach people is the behavioral thing. Uh, you can coach them for sure. Uh, but if you can actually build that into the process of how you select people and, and, and bring them on board, then it, it you'll get a much stronger team. You'll also actually get a much more diverse team. Yeah, definitely. You know, and so that's the other common challenge to try and get your head around, which is we work in this area, therefore I need people that come from this area. Oh, they all sit at Oracle and SAP, except, so I'm just going to go and hunt in those uh in those areas now that's not necessarily a bad thing but what you have to then think about is well what's the impact that's going to have on just how we operate our culture how we engage with clients if i start to build a homogenous team all from the same background um so i'll give you an example i i i worked in a team where we hired all consultants and that was brilliant they were all superb but the problem is we attacked everything from a strategic consultancy point of view so we would really run out of whiteboards like coming to make decisions uh worked in a, a, another environment which was all very much people who came from a sales background so they were much more commercially focused they were all good people but weren't particularly consultative um you want to get a balance you know you want to get a balance because if you have all consultants and you're currently you're suddenly working in a professional services firm if you uh, hire people with uh, too much of a commercial bent you've changed the entire nature of you know you might start to see over time long-term customer value becomes less important than my quarterly number yeah. not always but you might so it's all about sort of striking that balance so you kind of want people that are going to think outside the box of what you currently sit within basically yeah hopefully yeah i mean hopefully everybody's that you've created a, an environment where where people go oh, actually you know what i don't know if that is the right way to, to to go around it i'd love to try and experiment to do xyz and you know work with you to do that but but this is why hiring for cs is really hard yeah. like it's really hard because unless you spend the time thinking about this and learning and understanding your customers and figuring out what are the things we can do that add value it's really easy to start hiring the wrong kind of profile yeah and i think one of the other difficulties in a potentially a debatable topic as well is then are you already hiring with a a segmentation in mind so um you know is your is your customer base segmented on value of the account mm. the industry that they sit within the number of users etc so the segmentation is a is a, again a tricky one because when you first start a business all your customers are in the most important segment because you don't have many of them right so and you know you're in the business of learning so you you typically will over service your early customers not necessarily always a bad thing because you learn a lot from that right um so i think the thing with segmentation is just very broadly to understand and just accept we can't treat customers all the same way Unless, of course, you are 
a particular product or service where you may do two deals a year and those deals are massive. So in that case, well, yeah, we have to over-service them. So adding more people is uh, on a much more conservative pace, right? So I think first of all is broadly to say, look, we can't necessarily treat them all the same. Um, But starting at that higher touch end, I think works quite well because you then learn, uh, well, what are the tools? What are the assets? What are the approaches that actually work? How can we then distill those into something that's either a bit more self-service or a bit more automated, whether it's in the product or through campaigns or whatever that can service those other segments? Um, So it's kind of good to go in with the mind of, yes, we have a broad segment and have a, a, at least a starting definition, excuse me, whether that's, but don't be too rigid with it. So if you say, well, look, broadly, everything above this ARR we treat as a really high touch, you're probably going to have clients that aren't in that bracket that are strategically very important to your business because they're a marquee name or the expansion potential is huge. So then it's important about saying, okay, well, we've drawn an initial line here, but who are the who are the edge cases? Like, who are we going to treat as a high touch even though they aren't because we know that this is just the first sale of many they've told us if this works they're gonna they're gonna buy more um and then wherever you draw those lines i think it's important to really keep on revisiting them so every quarter sit down look at the data and go do these thresholds make sense because if you're continue to be successful what you're going to want to do is drive greater efficiencies in the sort of middle and middle segment and the tail end and that may not necessarily always equate to hiring more people. It could be more automation, for example. Yeah, I guess, is there a risk of when companies segment clients, let's perhaps say by vertical, that within that you could have a number of enterprise accounts that are mixed in with some perhaps smaller accounts where low-touch engagement strategies would probably be more beneficial. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you, if, if you had that structure in place, mm-hmm. what would be your way of segmenting that even further to separate our enterprise and different priorities interesting well if you've CS. got a motion running for each segment so let's say you've got a more of a self-service for the long tail but you've still got a client that is in that enterprise bracket but they're not actually that spending that much or that high priority there's nothing stopping you enrolling them in the same programs uh, that are being uh, made available uh, and and you essentially use that lever to manage that that kind of client so it's not necessarily always a case of subdividing. It's more of a case of, well, actually, they're in this segment, but for whatever reason, we've decided, you know, the well, if we're doing our job, really, all our customers should be getting more and more self-sufficient and need us less and less over time. Um, but if we have one of those customers, then we can still manage them through a more scaled or more, more uh, uh, self-service touch if we have to. Yeah, so I guess it's more of a, it's an ongoing basis, obviously, segmenting the clients. It will naturally mm-hmm. have to evolve, like you say. Yeah, the, the mistake people make is they draw a line and then they never yeah. look at it again. Yeah. Especially, yeah. like, <laughs> you, you obviously made the point around you could have those marquee names that might be quite low in, in mm-hmm. spend currently, but the potential is that they, if you work with them, they could become yeah. one of your bigger clients, for example. So um, what are the main sort of things that you look for? Obviously, we spoke about segmentation, mm. but... And I guess it's dependent on the type of software or product that it is. But is there anything that are like standout metrics that you use as um, like health checks, risk reviews? Anything yeah, like I mean, I, I think metrics are, again, always a very common topic. I think it's really important to have metrics that fall into two, two categories. So one is just um, sentiment metrics. 
how happy is the customer with the product or service. The other are, are actually much more usage and revenue metrics and depending on how you're licensed the usage may equate to actually revenue so um <clears throat> sentiment metrics you know uh, you know if you do a discrete activity with them if you have in cs an onboarding team and onboarding is a very discrete activity it lasts x amount of time and then we we know when it's finished a discrete time-bound activity is really good to see that how was the onboarding experience for you you know, and then over time you can start to see, do I need to improve the way we do onboarding, for example? Um, so CSAT's very good for very discrete time-bound things. Uh, NPS, you know, it's a reasonably controversial metric. Some people are very pro, some people are... But it can be a very good proxy for how the customer is feeling about your product and service and your engagement with them because if you're doing CS right, they should really think about their engagement with you as part of the product experience. Um and it could be a good way to show, well, actually, companies that have gone through the CS motion have, a, on average, higher C NPS than people who don't. The reason it's controversial is that often there's huge regional variations in how people respond to NPS. But also, sometimes NPS scores are lower because of they have a specific product or feature thing that they want. They're happy with you. They're happy with the service. They But broadly, it's like, I don't have this feature, therefore you're getting a six. So... Again, but I think broadly having some sort of sentiment is really important. And then I think um, on the, the sort of more uh, uh, qualitative side rather than quantitative is net retention revenue, I think, is a really important metric, not just for CS, but for the whole business. So if you are uh, putting effort into paid customers, you know, quarter on quarter or year on year, are we actually doing a good job at retaining and growing the revenue base out of you know you're always going to lose customers it's unfortunate you're always going to have you know downward renewals that's just a fact of life but are you are those processes managed so we knew that was coming up it wasn't a surprise and we put a plan in place to try and prevent that from happening and are we adding to the pot are we actually creating the conditions for these customers to buy more product feature license on renewal i think that's really really important and then again if you're uh, very much uh, then you often see this in collaborative software if you're uh, a very usage based uh, the, the value of your product comes from wide scale adoption then looking at things like uh, engagement rates login rates etc and making sure they're trending up uh, is really important um, so i think you're having that qualitative quantitative mix uh, is is key Similar to segmentation, you should keep reviewing it. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah your, your business is going to change, your products are going to change, your customers are going to change. The metrics will almost certainly need adjustment over time. Yeah, I think as, um, and it was interesting actually, just around general sentiment and health of the client, I think a lot of the time the CSM can get just a gut feel yeah. for how the account is going. Mm. Do you have any ways outside of MPS that you measure sentiment and general customer satisfaction i guess uh well i think if we then took the qualitative uh, the qualitative metrics and then said well there's a quantitative and a qualitative part to that so the qualitative part would be uh, things like a csat or an mps um i think there is it's really important to have a gut feel indicator so um you could get a little bit scientific about that and say you, you know what is the breadth of relationship we have what level are we connected at how responsive is the customer how many events are they coming to you know what's the general level of responsiveness you know you could start to break it down that way uh all of those are a proxy for as the cs person this is how i feel 
the relationship is and there might be a disparity you know i've seen it usage is strong adoption strong but they never speak to us yeah. so green on usage red on relationship yeah. can be the other way around you know they love us they talk to us all the time but they never seem to get anything done so usage is actually really low so um i think it's probably about having a little mental checklist um around what we consider to be a healthy relationship um i would probably add to that one you know is there any competitive threat mm. yeah. yeah because you know they may have your deployed your service but they may have a new chief exec come in and go oh, well i like the competitor i had them at my last place and suddenly that becomes an issue so you know it's probably something to worth tracking as well i think um dan will probably like this question next week when we speak to him but <laughs> um do you have any particular tools that you use to track health I wonder, I wonder and engagement what, i wonder what dan's <laughs> gonna, gonna say um there are obviously a whole variety of tools there i think it's just important to have something uh and i guess something that's and initially you will use a spreadsheet like i mean that's just that's just how it is so you may have a crm but because the crm is very tightly managed and the resources for making changes are quite limited you know you'll probably just build something in a in a spreadsheet that's actually not a bad idea initially when you don't have a resource because that is the v1 of whatever tool that you end up going with so um I'll just I'll put it out there. There's just a number of CS sort of focused CRM tools. Some people, if they have the skill and resource, will build the rest of necessary objects on top of their existing uh, CRM. But I think it's just mostly rather than what tool, it's important to have something. So if you think about salespeople, salespeople have a territory plan. If you're a CS person and you have a bunch of accounts, you have a territory. You should have a territory plan. Good salespeople will have an account plan. They will have a structured account goals. Well, you're a CS person, you have a bunch of accounts, you should have a success plan, you know, for, for each. So, you know, there is a nice corollary. There's nothing necessarily stopping you using whatever's been built for the sales team and, and, and making little tweaks to it. Or going out and buying one of the, you know, the many fine commercial products that, that are out there. So from a, a leadership or management perspective of a CS team, so we've obviously touched on things like activities, engagement, mm. health checks, etc. Um, and again, potentially a debatable topic. Um, what's your opinion on having a revenue target for a CS team? Uh, so I think ultimately, if you look at net retention revenue, that's a revenue target. Um, I think in the initial stages, I think it's better to have a group or a team target rather than necessarily individual ones metrics govern behavior so if you give people initially too early individual targets it doesn't really incent them to help each other as much or it puts a barrier maybe to doing that so it also might start to incent some not great behavior with customers so i think it's really important uh, to have a group target whether that is incremental arr every quarter whether it's overall excuse me net retention revenue because what you have to do is show that there is a proxy between the value you're adding to the customer and the value you're adding to your own company. And it's nothing to really be afraid of. I think that's the other thing. People think, oh God, if I get a revenue target, then I'm going to become a salesperson. No, 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 that's not true. I mean, actually, there's nothing wrong with being a salesperson. So by and large, most salespeople are really consultative, really good and, uh, uh, you know, and very, uh, uh, you know, very uh, nice to work with. It's just more there's a psychological barrier there. But I think if you pick the right revenue metric for your group and the work that they do, 
then I think that's really important to do because you have to be able to, because otherwise you've got no case to make investment. You're going to get into a situation where your justification for more headcount is, well, people really like us. It's entirely possible to be really, really well liked by the customer and not add a single bit of value. <laughs> right? Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the question to always ask is if my chief exec or my CFO comes to me and says, right, why, how do you justify this, this headcount? You should have a very cogent answer to, to draw a line that says, well, actually, for every customer that we work with, quarter on quarter, they grow by 10% versus people who we don't work with. Mm. I find um, kind of, I guess, something that comes up a lot is lifetime value of the customer. Mm. Have you used that as... I guess, um, a way of being able to show the value of CS over time. I guess it's quite difficult to tie that back. Um, um, I personally ha- haven't used it, but then I've t- typically worked in organisations where we are looking at, 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 on a quarterly basis. But I think that is definitely uh, a metric that, you know, certainly at the top of the company should really be thinking about and caring about. It can also be useful from a prioritization and segmentation perspective. So... You know, you may have a small customer, but its lifetime value is enormous just because of the, I don't know, the, gen- the volume of transactions they generate on your system. So it'd be good for you to know that if it's in your portfolio, because then, you know, you would focus on, well, okay, I may not be that heavily engaged, but when I see their data trending a certain way, I better pounce on it because their lifetime value is like four times bigger than anything in my, in my portfolio. So I personally haven't spent too, too much time overall looking at it, but it is... It is important, and if your leadership is focusing on it or looking at it, then that's a good sign because then they are thinking about long-term customer health. Fantastic. I wanted to actually take it back. So you mentioned about the success plans mm. and the CSM having their own territory and a plan for that. Yeah, or at least thinking that way. Uh, at yeah. least, yeah, certainly. And is there what would you say to build into that success plan with the customer and mm-hmm. perhaps maybe the right format of which to do that? Mm, oh wow we, we could talk about success plans forever <laughs> i think um look it's fundamentally just saying i'm going to have a very structured approach preferably you would draft the success plan with your stakeholders you know you would sit with well really the three people the person who's got commercial responsibility the customer and you you know there should be inputs from all of that it's easier said than done but if a plan is just this is what i want to do with the customer you're probably going to hit roadblocks with the, getting their buy-in for it so it's really essentially about what do we want to try and achieve between now and the next QBR. So when we meet them in a quarter, what do we want to say we've we've worked on and uh, uh, and driven because we have mutually agreed these are the things that are going to add value. So that's the first thing, and then the second part is more of the internal part. It's like what are the tactics and the actual steps we need to take to realise those things. So some of them might be. I need the latest roadmap. I need to understand that inside out. I need to go and present it to them. You know, some of them might be, we need to get this part of the migration process finished between now and the next quarter so we can bring on stream this part of the business. So so it's about agreeing what those, the mutual agreement about what the value add items are you're going to work on, who's going to own them, and then what the tactics are to deliver them. And then obviously how well you've done on a given quarter. Yeah, yeah definitely. And I mean, it's, it's great to have that as well in the QBR to then measure against their success uh, essentially and you mentioned there as well just around product um, and perhaps understanding what they may want on the roadmap uh, timelines for that 
so CS obviously play quite an integral role. Hopefully, yeah. Uh, as, yeah, as the yeah. voice of the customer yeah, 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 yeah. that back. The people closest to the customer, that's uh, right. Yeah. Which can be quite difficult sometimes to get that voice internally with the product team mm. to fully translate back what the client wants to see and also how you prioritize that because mm. especially when you've got clients across different verticals, their priorities will differ. And it's just understanding maybe how to commun- like create a line of communication with the product team. Yeah, definitely. And I'm sure you'll hear a lot from Dan on this, given um, you know his company's just invested in in software specifically for for working with product. Um, I think one of the challenges um, from CS and a product perspective is com- customers and sometimes and mostly CS people think in terms of feature. So the customer needs this feature. From a product perspective, that's not very helpful. Right, so it's it's just like well, yeah, everybody wants you know. So what I was a really big fan of is is actually coaching your CS team to think in terms of a problem statement. So rather than just saying customer needs this, you want to actually break that down for product in terms of a problem. This is the customer. This is what they're doing right now. This is the impact to them of doing it this way. This is the risk for them in not having the capability to do X. That is a much more compelling way to describe what the customer needs rather than saying they need this, they need an audit feature, right? If you can phrase that to say, my customer Acme Corporation spend, have to have an admin spend 16 hours every month going through every record to pull out and delete personally identifiable information because if they don't do it, they'll lose their financial certification, right? Yeah. That's much more useful than going, they need an audit feature. Yeah, and I guess they can then <laughs> yeah. extrapolate that as well across the clients and say, well, actually, Correct. if this is affecting yeah. this one client, then exactly. this is the Yeah, and that's where really recording and- it and then sharing and having the mechanism to share that with product. Um, what, what can be really useful is to task one or two people in the team with a monthly responsibility of collating all of those. Preferably, they're being logged in a CRM somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and then either um, having them and le- your leadership sit down with product leadership every month on a cadence to go through, hey, this is what we're hearing, this is what we know, and and understanding what the prioritization is or whether it's going to get added to the roadmap and that kind of thing. Um, by and large, my experience has been most product people are really eager yeah. to talk to customers. So the other thing is if you get that mechanism of recording and sharing, whatever you agree that might be, is you know, really coach the CS team to say, hey, you know, go talk to products, see if they, if you can bring them into this call and hear it firsthand or talk to the customer in more detail about our philosophy and, and maybe why we're not doing something, you know. Um, it's always that fine balance because, you know, I've worked in companies where a customer says, I, you know, hundreds of customers are saying, we need this feature, right? And you look at it and go, wow, we're getting a lot of requests to build this feature. Then you go look at, do some due diligence on the feature and go, well, actually, to build that, that's a whole other science that we're not very good at. So we could build it, but it's probably going to be not very good. It'd be better for us to find a partner to build it and then have it as an app in our apps directory. Um, if you can give that context to a customer, they'll by and largely understand it. They say, look, we looked at that feature, we spec'd it out, we realised actually the level of expertise it needs, we just don't have. So we didn't want to ship a bad feature because that's worse than shipping no feature. But we're working with these partners and it's going to be available in the app store because they do this for a living. Yeah, I think that's a really good summary of yeah. what what CS is. Mm. It's, it's problem solving really, isn't it? So the, the product is 
essentially is just a byproduct, really, isn't it? Yeah. You want to understand what does you it buy claim? software for a reason is to solve some kind of problem. exactly. Yeah. yeah. So they're almost um, it, it, like you were saying before. Rather than selling features, you're selling benefits or solutions. Yeah. And that then feeds into that product. Uh, feedback exactly and it's just about how you then describe what the way you go about describing what those features are is um it's it's a bit like being a doctor right so you 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 don't you know some people go to the doctor and go i've got cancer right and then the doctor doesn't say oh wow okay let's put you on treatment they break that down and triage it and tell me like tell me the symptoms diagnose it for me what happens when you do x blah 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 you know you don't have cancer, this is what you've got, right? So it's about literally getting to breaking down that, you know, and that's why being consultative is really important, is, you know, is to be able to... I had a customer ask me once in a, in a job, so, oh, we really, why don't you have a LinkedIn rec- uh, integration? We need a LinkedIn recommendation. And I was like, break that down for me. What are you looking for that to do? And then in that conversation, I didn't say anything, and in that conversation, he was like, actually, yeah, we don't, we don't really need yeah. Sort himself out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's just about having that sort of consultative nous to to break it down, and it's just good to ask product. Going, look, what's the best way for us to present this to you? You know, how is it consumable? Um, and uh, and then also, you know, from the softer skill side on a CS perspective, you know, expectation management is a hugely important skill to have, uh, which is you know, explain the process. This is. I need to understand the impacts. This is what we're going to present, but I cannot promise you this is going to get built, but I can promise you we will get back to you with an answer of you know how we're thinking about it or what is and isn't going to happen. I think that's the, the sort of situational analysis as well that you were mentioning before in terms of if you understand the client's expectations and if they become frustrated with something, if you're able to articulate back to them, you know, this isn't something we're able to do and hmm. fully explain why. And the why, exactly. Yeah, yeah they, yeah, they yeah. will be quite understandable. Yeah, um, again, you know, most, you know, we're talking about customers that are used to being sold to. Most customers are pretty used to, like, firing off a feature request and then never hearing anything back. Like, it just disappears into a hole somewhere. So if you can bridge that gap for them and just say, look, we, we, we can't do it, but this is the reason why we can't do it. This is the approach that we are thinking about. Um. I actually did work with a product leader many years ago who used to say, listen, empathize, promise nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, which is actually not a not a bad sort of rubric to, to, to think, but it is about that follow-up. It is, is, is about explaining to them the process and the follow-up. And sometimes you may need to bring a product person with you to have that follow-up discussion because they, they're going to explain the nuance. Yeah. yeah, I do like that idea though in terms of firstly being that authority figure to actually say, look, this is what we're hearing in the market, questioning perhaps maybe why they need that, especially conversations you're having with lots of different users. Mm -hmm. If you took every single request, it would be impossible to make and even to prioritize or or even build. Um, Something I've heard before, actually, it was similar to sort of referencing being like a doctor. But Although a doctor's maybe not a good analogy because you only go to a doctor when something's wrong. So. Yeah. More like a coach, I think is better. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, I'm doing good. I want to improve my running or something. I mean, coach is probably better. That's it. But it's, so when somebody goes to the doctor, um, they take their advice because they do see them. Hopefully. As an authority. <laughs> yeah. figure. So yeah. if the doctor tells you you yeah. haven't got cancer, you don't question it. You automatically believe Hopefully. Automatically Some people believe don't, them. but yes. Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess in terms of somebody within a CSM position, um, when they are trying to have conversations with somebody probably at quite a senior level, mm-hmm. how do they become more authoritative in that conversation? 
and wow, that's a really terrific question so i think part of that is obviously the behavioral characteristics you've hired for so people who are really good communicators i think being a good listener is really important i mean as in proper active listening not just waiting for your turn to speak um empathy is a very good trait so being able to relate to someone even though you are not in their situation or have their, that experience and then being able to have a little bit of distance so you can figure that out um but I think fundamentally, it all of it needs to be supported by having a really strong bedrock of either product, industry, or domain knowledge. Yeah, because if you don't have that level of credibility, the rest of it is kind of of no real practical use. So um, I'm great at listening. I understand your problem. Uh, I understand what you're saying. Uh, but there is no way for me to translate that into something practical with our solution or our product so i think having that industry domain or or product expertise uh and you know is really i think and being able to demonstrate that through your your experience through conversation i think is really a one way of uh, of really uh, having that authority and actually building trust yeah 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 and i think that's the, the trust is the key thing really isn't it it's mm. and again it goes back to that what what is your problem that's the thing that i want to understand from you yeah they're much more likely to engage with you and to to trust you if yeah. you are presenting what is your problem i'm really here to reduce the amount of effort that you have to do in your job to make sure that you get value really quick to minimize the risk of you being a customer of ours and you know by proxy i'm here to really make you look good mr customer right so um if you can get that across uh, through your engagement, uh, maybe not even explicitly, I think that really helps. Um, because sometimes you are going to have to deliver a message people don't want to hear. And if you have that foundation of trust, they still won't be happy, but they'll be accepting of it because they trust you. Perfect. Great. And I guess just in terms of like a summary there almost, what would be, so what would be your advice for somebody who is tasked with starting a CSM team tomorrow. Wow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> wow. Um, once you've established the reasons for it, you know, and, and kind of dug into it, I would, um, you can look, look at the data, look at, you know, all the information you have to hand, but I would just go out and speak to as many customers as possible. <laughs> right. Um, when I joined Slack nearly four years ago, uh, it was just, I got back from the States. It was Christmas. Everyone was on holiday. Uh, so I actually did support tickets for three weeks, mm-hmm. like from my dining table. Like I logged, I, I come from Zendesk, so I knew how Zendesk worked. Yeah. So and it was really scary, like because like I was still learning. But I answered support tickets because that was actually one of the best ways to understand. This is how people use the product. These are the questions they have. These are the challenges they have. I read every single document on the help website, like every single one. So just getting educated about you know, why customers buy, what they use it for, the questions they have, the pain points, etc. All of that will help you build a picture of, well, what can we do to add value to the customer? Great, I'm going to orient an organization around, around that. Because that will help you understand what problem it is you're trying to solve. Is it a deep technical challenge? All right, so then I need to hire people of a specific type who have that level of technical knowledge because their clients are engineers or tech savvy people is the problem that i'm trying to solve 
uh, uh, you know, work, configuring workflows for a particular type of business, sales, customer service, etc. That's a certain type of person. Actually, the technology is really simple. Really, what we're doing is introducing a, quite a radical change in the way the company works. Brilliant. I should probably hire some change management consultants. So it, that'll help you to understand. That's a really good idea. Yeah, you know, like what what is the actual problem or is actually the value that we're trying to drive and what lever do i need to pull mm. yeah i think that's and even not just for the cs leader but perhaps the ceo um head of revenue to actually do that and get an idea of the state of yeah um there's a very well-known supermarket uh chain in the uk where i believe i don't know if they still do it but the board all spent two weeks a year working in a store like stacking shelves talking to customers blah 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 um, one of the ironies is, is your company gets more successful and gets bigger. Even as a CS leader, you get pushed further and further away from the customer because you've just got all this other internal orchestration to do. So um, getting that FaceTime and, uh, and you know, whether it's answering tickets or... Personally, I think everyone who joins a company, doesn't matter what role, should do a stint on the help desk. It's the best way to learn about any company, I think. It's putting yourselves in the customer's shoes, really. For it? sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's that, that, that insight that you will get from that, I think, you, you know, is huge, especially if you're in sales. Like, that's huge. I think it's a huge, interesting uh, data source to to absorb yourself into. It also gives you a really lot of respect for people who work on customer service. It's a very, very hard job. Um, but, yeah, I think getting that uh, firsthand, as much firsthand as you can, um, it, it, that will really help inform your thinking because it's very easy to go, right, okay, I've got to build a customer success department. Um, right, I'm going to go look at all the job recs for CSMs on the web. I'm going to pick the bits that I like. I'm going to create a Frankenstein job rec. I'm going to put it out there and I haven't... And then I'm just going to hire people who are like, oh, yeah, you've been a CSM for five years. Great. Without necessarily... And they're probably... They're all smart. They'll probably be fine, but the ramp might be a lot longer or you may have hired someone who's really good at relationship and account management because they came from a product set that didn't require any domain or product expertise. Um, you'll often see that with things that are services. So it's actually, you're just paying a web subscription for a service and really the, what the CS person is, is you know they are a specialist or have come from the same background as the buyer, right? They're not a software person. That works fine um, but you may have a product or service that actually goes well you really need to understand how to do technology deployment so that's a different type of person yeah, yeah. i think yeah. it goes back to the first conversation we had at the start mm. where you said it's not doing things as you've always done um, yeah. so essentially just thinking like how does this work for the product mm. for this particular company not necessarily what so i think that was before we started recording wasn't yes, it so yeah. just a recap for everyone listening uh, the, the and i can't by any means confess this is my quote i've definitely heard this somewhere which is the most dangerous words in any company i go but we've always done it that way yeah and that's why you know you need to constantly be looking assessing is the segmentation right are the, are the metrics right are the engagements that we offer customers adding value um you, you have to just keep a motion of just uh, just keep looking is this working uh, does this make sense you know I, I worked in one company where we had like 10 engagements we would offer customers in the middle segment and the company just thought oh right the way to measure success is the number of these we're doing every quarter 
I went back as the new person on the ground and spoke to customers that had been through every program. And like, how useful was it? And they were like, well, yeah, they were polite, but you know, it wasn't useful. What I really needed was this, right? Then you can actually start to gather that and go, right, well, we should ditch these. These aren't useful. We should take these and enhance them so they provide X, Y, Z. Um, so I, I, I'll give you a very practical example, right? Uh, the anal- your analytics part of your products are really complicated. Great, we can offer you a two-hour walkthrough of the analytics uh, background. That was helpful, but what really would have been helpful is if you'd have walked me through these two reports I have to build, mm. right? That's a really simple additional thing to do, <laughs> right? But the value that adds is huge because you've helped the customer get over a barrier. First of all, they've solved a practical problem. Second of all, they've done it in a safe environment because you've helped them. Third, you've tried to make them more self-sufficient. So now when they're coming to you as a CSM, they're not saying, hey, tell me how reporting works. They're saying, how do I get this variable in my report? Because I, you know, they're, they're, you've up-leveled the usage. So that, that is kind of, I think, just a very practical example. Perfect. Yeah, so I mean, we, we've obviously spoken a lot about um, the current state of, of customer success. Mm-hmm. Um, building teams, measuring teams, etc. Um, I think the, the final thing we really wanted to, to go through was, um, obviously you've worked in customer success, you've seen a lot of change. How would you sort of summarize how the industry and the role might have changed and what would you expect it to, to develop into in the future? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. So I think um, from an industry perspective, it's uh, starting to become a very normal thing. In fact, you know, it's quite common now in Silicon Valley that you might not get any VC funding unless you can demonstrably show that you are putting an CS motion in place or you have one. So it's becoming a really important thing because obviously subscription business is becoming more and more important and, and much better understood. So I think that's a that's a positive thing. I think the other trend that you're seeing is m- more B2C, so business-to-consumer companies are thinking along these lines so they may not necessarily call it success but they're thinking actually i do have to do some investment beyond customer service to make sure that our consumers are are, are doing well well with it uh, there's definitely a lot more tooling uh you know there's a lot more software available uh uh you know crms predictive analytics tools all that kind of stuff uh, and i think moving forward um as you sort to see machine learning and ai encroaching more and more systems i think you're going to start to get tooling that helps customer success be predictive so at the moment you know most teams start off very reactive and you spend a lot of effort hopefully moving from a reactive to a proactive footing the ultimate goal is to be predictive so you've got data and signals coming at you which show oh this is trending and based on historical information if you don't make an intervention here bad things are going to happen. So I think we're, we're hopefully getting to, uh, over the, the sort of future, into a way that we'll have capability on our hands that will actually be much more predictive. On, on the subject of AI, machine learning, etc., do you think um, that's something that's potentially detrimental? Is it something that could take away that human touch of, of CS, or is it something that should be used internally to yeah, help predict I, I, I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, technology has a a uh, uh, historical precedent of displacing some types of work but creating whole loads of new ones that we never even realized so it's really hard to to say i think um it will be particularly useful in those customer segments where you are having to manage 
customers at scale so you know whether it's through an online community or, or self-service or i think it will start to actually alleviate a lot of uh, burden there because the ai will hopefully be smart enough where it will feel like you're interacting with the person but really it's 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 tooling um so i think it could be very very helpful there i think at the, the sort of more high touch ends um it will be like a very good pre- predictive tool but given that selling to people is an inherently human activity uh and cs is part of an ongoing sales motion uh i think it will be more of a support tool rather than necessarily a replacement tool at that end. Yeah, absolutely. I yeah. think we obviously spoke a lot around the measurement, usage reporting, things like that. I mm. definitely think it's it's going to be super helpful with stuff like that as well. So obviously you yeah. mentioned being predictive. and yeah. So you can obviously potentially set up rules whereby if we see a customer dipping below a certain threshold. Yeah, or then- there's just four or five different things that we look at which we know over time tend to create a certain pattern uh even even just outside of data even just things like there are ai tools there that will sort of analyze sentiment in email or sentiment in support tickets and you know uh, there's one vendor i know that uh has an ai engine that will predict what csat you're gonna get from the ticket interaction which is pretty uh, amazing right so uh all of that stuff will help not just on the qualitative but i think on the on the quantitative it'll help on the qualitative side as well yeah fantastic now um there was probably just a couple more questions we wanted to sure. finish on around advice yeah uh so the first and sorry to put you on the spot here no, <laughs> but i guess i learned a lot from my failures um yeah and the question i've got is what would you say has probably been one of like the biggest failures that you've learned from as a especially as a leader oh that's a, in CS? That's a really good question i touched on it before so that was prioritizing hiring fast over hiring well that's been a really big uh learning for me um just because obviously like i say the impact that that just has you know like it doesn't matter how big your organization is it it does have a very very big impact uh and i think the other thing is also i think i cottoned onto it too late that actually this whole idea of being part of the sales motion and being very tightly aligned to sales was something i think i've only really glommed onto in the last four or five years I very much operated before and that, yeah, it's pre and post and, you know, they, they sell it, they give it to us, then we run with it. And I think the, that was um, probably less of a failure, more of a, because it never really manifested itself in a bad way. I think it's just more of a learning that I wish I'd learned sooner. Um, plenty of other learnings around building businesses and teams, you know, certainly around uh, creating uh, a sense of urgency, uh, especially if you're a successful company it's quite easy to fall into complacency you know our customers love us they just keep buying from us right and you know that doesn't last forever so i think you know that's that's definitely been something i think i would have i wish i'd cottoned on to faster um hiring people in region quicker uh there's a whole school of debate about this but i think me it's been a personal failure in a couple of situations of centralizing the teams and actually because I was too afraid to take a punt and put someone in the field on their own but if you hired the right person that person's going to generate a real ton of momentum and awareness you know for you um so i think that's 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 one area and we we talk about failures for about an hour but i think definitely ultimately um any good leaders in the people business so there's a phrase that says uh, the most important decision we make as leaders is not the the what decisions it's the who 
decisions. And I think, again, that, you know, hiring fast because I had a need versus hiring well, that's definitely probably been their biggest learning for me. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, brilliant. And then just lastly, if you was to um, perhaps talk to your younger self um, in 2019. Yeah. And they were building out their career in CS. Yeah. What advice would you give to them? What should they be doing, learning, practicing? Oh, wow. Well, okay. Well, I think the um, the thing is, is to make yourself useful and not be too hung up on what you do. Uh, or like I, you sometimes can see a little bit of preciousness going, oh, I'm not dealing with that kind of customer. I only deal with that. I just do everything because you'll learn from everything. Um, and I think the... Um, so don't cherry, I guess, don't cherry pick, right? It's it's all good learning. And I think it's also important, I would tell my younger self, it's to be much more realistic about the pace at which you can progress. So it's good to be ambitious, that's good. Um, but you've got to also be realistic. So if you think about your career, especially in a startup, uh, think about it like a series of steps. Um, the first year, the steps are really close together and quite steep because you're just doing everything like you know you're just there's no process procedure you're figuring stuff out and you progress and there startups are full of people that have a stellar first year right they're full of people who have like that person is a legend right they've just done everything that we've asked them to do and they've done it really well and they're bright and young got a lot of hustle and you get to year two year three the steps get slightly longer because you have to then start to specialize and learn and get really good at less things but more specific things and not everyone makes that transition and so what they feel is like well I had a killer first year and things have slowed down a little bit now and I wanted to carry on at that pace because in three years I wanted to be vice president of something and I think it's I would go back and tell my younger self that's okay the steps get longer and longer you need to invest the time to learn the things that you may have touched on but you need to now get really good at them yeah i think like you said you almost you need those failures along the way right that's yeah. what you, you're going to learn the most from so yeah i think there's failures but i think i mean failure i think is now a little bit of a corrupted term from silicon valley sure. where it's like oh it's a good thing you know <laughs> yeah, fast you, you, yeah uh, <laughs> it's kind of got a little bit twisted i think it's important to accept that people do fail i fail you're all going to fail it's actually whether you learn anything from it yeah and actually that actually goes back to one of your first questions about competency and behavior i think the single most important thing is actually maturity and that's not a factor of age i've worked with people much younger than me or far more mature than me uh and the thing is, if people have a good base level line of maturity, then they are open to feedback, open to being coached, will be uh, will analyse their failures and things that haven't gone well. They won't be afraid of that. They'll learn from it. So I think um, if you actually, yeah, if you're going to start building an organisation, think about that, I think, in terms of the, the, the people that you put into it. And it's hard because, you know, you'll probably hire people who are at the early part of their career and they've full of energy and ideas and you know and it's finding a balance between creating conditions that allow people to do that but also not go crazy and actually focus on the things that are important which is why it's actually really important to have measures and metrics and and goals because it keeps everybody aligned and oriented hopefully uh, on on the mission so that's a kind of really long winded answer of a 
your question about what I would tell myself, but it would be, yeah, make yourself useful, be realistic about the pace at which you uh, will progress and double down on the things that you really need to get good at. That's, uh, that's and, great advice. Yeah. So uh, I think it'd be... Oh, and drink less coffee. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've probably fallen into that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Coffee is not a good substitute. Also <laughs> here with the coffee on the yeah, table. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> It's a proxy for not getting enough sleep. So, um, so yeah, actually, that is an important point. So work-life balance, it's, it's, it's easy to talk about. It's harder when you're really enthusiastic and you've got a lot of energy and you're, it's a great buzz and, you know, whatever. But it is very, very important to actually look after yourself you know and I'm just, now I'm sounding like my dad but you know I would tell my younger self that is actually take some holidays disconnect eat better get more sleep drink less coffee it'll help you focus more I think you know yeah and be more productive yeah yeah <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much. No, it's a pleasure. Uh, thank you. Yeah, Thanks for the great questions. Pleasure. And I um, hope to do this again in the future. Yeah, we'll be delighted. Yeah. Thanks very much, guys.